Hi, you're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Esther Rosenfield. I'm here with Soren Howe, and we are talking about episode 10 of season 3, A Constant Throb, directed by Mark Tinker, written by one W. Earl Brown, mm. which is very interesting. You might know him as uh, Bill from The Last of Us. Um, that's That's mainly where I know him from. Uh, I don't think he's really been in anything else. You didn't even know that until I told you. <laughs> uh, no, he's he's Dan. He's Dan Doherty. And he wrote it's this so, episode. Uh, it's super cool. Yeah. And actually it makes a bit more sense because um, I saw in an interview uh, talking about the movie. This is no spoilers for anything. But um, he was talking about how he felt like maybe he felt like his character or there were some other characters he felt like didn't quite have the full send off that he would have liked. And there was apparently a lot of stuff left on the cutting room floor, but it seemed like he was, it was really in the weeds on like the filmmaking process. And it sounds like the reason for that is he has been on that side of things specifically for Deadwood because he was actually writing uh, for this. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, yeah. It's neat that like you'll have situations sometimes where like an actor, usually when a show is running for longer, one of the stars will be like, I want to try directing. Can I direct an episode? Um, yeah, like Robin Wright in uh, um, House of Cards. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. She ended or up I'm, like taking over that whole show. I'm pretty sure Steve Carell <laughs> did an episode of The Office at one point, or maybe oh, really? one of the actors on that did an episode. But yeah, you, like, it happens pretty frequently. Just like, well, B.J. Novak was like a producer and a writer on that. He like took over that show as well, or yeah. maybe even from the beginning, he was yeah pretty pretty in the weeds in there. Um, but it's cool to see that coming from like the writer's end to see an actor be like, cause it's one thing for an actor to be on set every day and always be working with a director and want to try that out. It's another for them to say, I want to actually go into the writer's room, which I have no contact with. And like, that's what I want to try out. I think it kind of speaks to what is great about Deadwood. Like that the actor, well, I mean, he probably has some contact with David Milch, right? Oh, and I, and I mean, David absolutely. Milch is like the, but I just mean like, person. I just mean like the writing process itself. Oh, Totally. Like that's something that actors typically aren't a part of. Let that that has happened by the time they start their work. So I think it like it kind of speaks to what is great about Deadwood that the writing is so attracts strong people. on this yeah. show that it attracts the actors actually to want to take part in it. Yeah, to either deliver the lines or in this case, you know, write them. But you're right; it does. I, I was uh, in this case because he's so involved. David Melch is so involved. I thought he's probably he had a, a bit more contact with the writing side of things, but. I agree with you that like the general trend is the actor who's like, but what I really want to do is direct. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and uh, and this it, it doesn't tend to be what I really want to do is write. Maybe write and direct, but not usually just write. Um, and this is a really well written episode. It is. Like it's 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 uh, it's really charming, and you, clearly he understands these characters very well. Um, so yeah, I. I uh, yeah, I really liked Constant Throb. And by the way, I, I made sort of an allusion last week to a Constant Throb being um, a sort of a saucy uh, uh, title. And uh, I was 100% right. It's a penis. Uh, it so, is. That's the best part. <laughs> and such a, it's a, like such a one-off, nothing uh, little scene. And like that's what the whole thing gets named. Um, but of course, you know, it, it applies in other, in other ways. But it's just funny that that's that's what they went with for the title um it is fun like I, I guess that's actually a good place to jump right in i think because the one thing that really strikes me first and foremost about this episode is the editing mm. it's particularly in this kind of second half where after um 
hearse man Barrett goes to deliver the note to Al. It keeps cutting away from Al kind of torturing him and then back to that, which is something Deadwood pretty rarely does. Uh, like we've talked about in the past, the way Deadwood will uh, typically end a scene too early and then kind of cut back to somewhere else and we see the, the, the consequences of that. We see the fallout and we see what leads from it that we didn't necessarily see actually happen on screen. Uh, it's it's really unusual for the show to cut away from something and then cut right back to it as if no time has passed. Um, yeah, I thought that was... I think it's done that in one or two occasions in the past where we also thought it was really weird, right? Wasn't there a scene... I think it was maybe the wedding or something. There was some scene in season two where we were like, there's a really strange edit that it cuts away and then cuts back. I think, right. yeah, I think it's, I think it's William's funeral or something. It's like a really strange yeah. sequence um, where it does something sort of similar, but you're right. It like totally cuts the middle <laughs> the scene to like do like a gag and then come back. Yeah. It's a very odd choice. Especially, yeah, well, again, I didn't even mention, like, the reason we're talking about this is it the first time it does this, it's to cut to Con Stapleton, again, just being uh, uh, too horny to live um, and and knocking at this woman's door and just, and just begging her to let him in because of his constant throb. And it's just so funny to, like, to cut, f- to, to take us away from Al uh, beating up Barrett to that and then directly back to Al. It's almost like it's just such a bizarre way to present uh, these that scene in that context, like very directly bookended by this Al stuff. It's just, it's so weird, but it's it's cool. Yeah, and the other thing that's I think it sticks out even more in this episode because it's so central. Like you know, we talk about episodes that are sort of scattered or have sort of a central thing, but a lot of other side plots going on. And this episode has some of that, but basically it's an ex- extremely focused episode. The whole thing is about one central event, and that's about it. Like, that's the main thrust of it. Now, there's a lot of moving parts in within that, but that it, the whole episode's about Alma getting shot at and and the moves between Al and, and George Hurst. Um, and that's, like, I would say, like, encompasses the great majority of what's going on. Yeah, there's a little stuff with Cy. Yeah, there's a very brief scene with Jane and Joni. Um, but even that stuff's tied in. Well, I guess not Cy, but the Jane and Joni stuff's tied in a bit to the to what's going with Hearst. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a... a, a, a because it's, such, it's, it's, it's so um, concentrated, um, we notice when it does these little cuts away. Um, but yeah, no, I really liked the episode. I thought it was, uh, it's nice. It feels like the momentum of everything has just picked up dramatically. And, you know, last episode, we said there's a lot of storylines that sort of came to a close with Steve and the Earps and all these things. And it it definitely gives the impression that like they were trimming the fat so they could just whittle down to them, like the main bits and just drive forward with that without having any real distractions. Um, moving forward to the to the end of the season. I completely agree with you. It's a very focused episode in a way that's kind of unusual for Deadwood, which is typically so sprawling. Um, you know, there's usually a million different things going on that are kind of disconnected from each other most of the time. It's a very, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an ensemble show in kind of the truest sense. Mm. And to have an episode that is so heavily devoted to one storyline and 
not just that, but that has so many characters devoted to this one storyline that you know it pulls in so many different people is really cool and 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 um out of character for the show it's it's i think the last time also the last time we saw this kind of intercutting that we talked about but also the last time that so many characters were involved in one thing was when william died Mm -hmm. and the aftermath of that and then the very end of the season with the uh dancing and everything and um this happens at the, about the same point in the season that William died, so I think this is that's probably a good analog to look at just in terms of the structure of the season. So this is know. the the battle episode, the episode nine. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I guess in a sense. I'm just kidding. We don't have to talk about that anymore. So you know, oh, and we? thank God for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it, I think you're completely right, and it's funny that you say it pulls them all in because it it kind of makes. Uh, Hearst look like a planet or like a black hole, you know, this gravitational, like just pulling the space time of the, the town so that everyone's drawn into his orbit. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely because of the, the, the gravity of the situation, but of the, like the uh, significance of how much is going to potentially affect the town. Um, and also, I mean, this is another like a uh, element to what we, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about, but the, you know, one of the reasons, like it's it's cool in its own right, but one of the reasons that we see people, we see like, for example, Jewel and the prostitutes all talking and like sort of fawning over Alma, is not only to show that solidarity. You could have shown that at any point, but to show it here is to shoot at Alma. Is for whatever reason, I don't know what almost done to endear herself to a good chunk of the camp, but whatever. She's sort of a, a role model, I guess, um, because she's like successful, and by that I mean like she inherited a lot of money. Um, but anyway, she's she's a a role model for a, a chunk of this camp. So by attacking her, there's a a sense of solidarity there that you've attacked us as well, even though obviously one of the they weren't directly involved um, in in the shooting. So I think it was. It's part of that. Um, it's it's part of that sort of consolidation of of these characters to, to sort of draw those lines in the sand. Yeah, it's funny you mention um, kind of the town rallying around Alma. Even Al is kind of uh, very, you know, not tender with her, not supportive of her. But he <laughs> I don't want to go too far and say like he was human towards her, but you know, yeah, but. He, <laughs> In, in as much as elsewhere in Jin can be, he was very much like, sure. you know, look, it sucks to get shot at. I'm sorry that happened to you. He doesn't say that, but that's what he means. Um, and that's like, I like that it takes something like this to pull out of characters sort of that kind of unlikely behavior. Like the way that Charlie, uh, there's this great scene with Charlie where he uh, kind of reports it back to Al and then says, oh, should I go relieve Adams? And Al says, yes. And then Charlie almost realizes what he's doing. And as he's walking out, he's like, but I don't work for you. or I don't take orders from you or anything. <laughs> um, and it's this great moment of like, this is so shocking to him that he just instantly falls into like Al's plan because he's like, all right, this is what we need to do. We yeah. need to all uh, play our roles correctly. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and I like that line that Al says to, to Alma that you alluded to where he says, it's horrible being shot at, never gets no better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you just, you get that, 
it's such a great line because it you know it in one breath just sort of hints at all of the times Al's been at the receiving end of this kind of thing and um yeah no it's a it's a it's a good sentiment um yeah I mean you're right and and I you know it, this is a this Charlie point is an excellent one where you you know he's he doesn't like Al they don't have like any real connection but circumstances have, are you know dictate that you know they can go back to being you know uh, disconnected and, and uninterested in what the other one's doing when Hearst has been dealt with but at this point in time he knows that his boss Bullock is aligned with Al and the camp basically has to look to Al and his allies for any sort of support because at the moment there's really no one left to um, you know fight this battle with, with Hearst um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I just, I, I love the fact that this is like every episode so far has the season has just continued to escalate this conflict and they haven't quite gotten to the point of like an, like a, a an all out like firefight, but it's definitely in that bunker mentality and that like, uh, that that uh, that like wartime mentality that I, I really appreciate about the, the way this, this episode's playing out. Yeah, I agree. It is very like, it's sort of this moment of like, oh, now stuff is like serious. Not that this, not that it hasn't been serious before, but it's all like, like now stuff is happening that we have to actually react to. It's mm-hmm. not just Hearst getting people into place anymore. It's not just him put, pulling more guns in and consolidating power and knocking a wall in the a hole in the wall um like this is an actual you know direct uh, literally like a shot a literal shot across the bow um, <laughs> literally <laughs> in a way that even him killing his workers wasn't because him killing his workers had nothing to do with the conflict between him and the rest of the town that yeah, it was just increased that terrible. level of tension but it wasn't part of that direct animosity the way that this is. Right. Exactly. Um, I, I want to. I do want to talk about Al specifically because I think that this episode finally shakes him out of whatever was going on with him. Yeah. Um, and you see it immediately. And I mean, I, this scene is incredible when Al, Alma's shot at. Um, Al jumps off the balcony. <laughs> yeah. It's this. Oh, it's, it's such so a exciting. Moment. It's so fantastic because it takes like one of the main pieces of iconography of the show and completely like turns it upside down. Like how many times in every single episode of this show, there is a shot of Al standing at the balcony. <laughs> yep. And in this episode, he leaps over the banister and jumps to the ground. It's wild. Yeah. And he never like, um, you know, you might think it's like the place where he would like throw someone out, or, but I don't think anyone's, has anyone fallen off of the, well, him and Seth did at the beginning of season two. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But like, and that was also a huge moment as well. So like it's, but it generally doesn't happen and certainly not willfully. Um, but like Al just jumps into action immediately. And this whole episode, first of all, his hair is like fixed. It gets crazy, but it gets crazy in like the way it has in the past. And then he fixes <laughs> he fixes it again. It's just very, and it's like, I look to that as like a sort of an indicator of where he's at. But seeing him make his plans, execute them effectively, and just take charge, and then also when he's just beating the crap out of Barrett, you're like, "There's Al. That's where Al should have been. This is like finally, you know." It's just it was extremely cathartic to watch. It was because yeah, it is like this has been the story of Al this whole season of how 
like frustrated and bottled up he's felt yep. and how uh, incapable of action he's felt. And it's funny that the moment... We should talk about what pushes him over the edge. Um, although I guess... I think there's a question of whether or not he intended to do this the whole time. To kill he, Barrett? Yeah, because he very deliberately invites him up to the office, right? Right. When he doesn't necessarily have to. So there is a question of, like, did he do that knowing that he was going to kill him? Or was it this moment where Barrett says, um, and I don't remember if this is truthful or not, because I think that Hearst did have a conversation with Captain Turner that might have been to this effect. But what Barrett says is, like, you know, Hearst told Captain Turner to make it slow, and to not kill him if he had the chance, but to drag it out. So, you right. know, he could have killed Dan, but uh, he just didn't. Right. And this is what seems to tip Al over into violence. But I guess, I mean, how did you read Al's intentions? Uh, so I think I think what Barrett was saying is definitely true, because we got most of that when, you know, he tells Turner to make a show out of it. So we definitely got that bit, whether or not he That's said That's true. Way. That's what I was thinking of. You're right. So we definitely have seen that. Um as for what Al's intention was, I didn't know if he was going to kill him the whole time. I wasn't, I, that was, it wasn't like I was like shocked when it happened, but I was like, okay, that's a, that's a play. Um, <laughs> but I think it was a smart thing to do. I mean, anything to even the odds, even a little bit, because they have nothing. Um, so, um, and again, what we see in this, you know, episode is Hearst's reaction to all of this to Alma walking, to um, to when his man doesn't come back. Um, and, I mean, that great scene when, when Al steps out onto the balcony and he says, uh, he says that he was just, he's just passing a little wind. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it's, it has this, like, tremendous effect on Hurst. He's beside himself with fury. And that indicates that what they're doing is working extremely well. Uh, much like the letter did, much like other things that they've done, but it's just it's it's a it's a very effective thing. Um, so I I don't know if it was necessary to kill Barrett. I don't know how much good it would have done, to, like been to to like let him live. Um, but the general message I think was important to send that like Al's back in action. So I I don't know if he was gonna just beat him to a pulp and then send him back, or if he was always gonna kill him. Um, I think the main goal was to get information out of him, uh, and then to kill him. And so that's what he did. He beat the crap out of him. And then I guess sort of hoped that, um, that would be sufficient to get whatever information he could out of him. And then he was just going to take his vengeance out on, on Hearst by killing him without, um, and so that was sort of like, it was by proxy because he can't do it directly. Um, was sort of how I read that. Well, it's funny because Hearst goes into, sends Barrett over there you know, this is what he tells Barrett. We don't know what he actually is thinking, but I think it's fair to assume that he is not lying when he's like, you know, Al's not going to kill you. This, the letter I'm sending, because Barrett voices his concern of like, the last guy you sent over with a note to Al Swearingen ended up dead. Right. And Hearst says, look, this is a much less provocative note. This, even right, though it's right, not, right. obviously, because there is a coded message in it, um, a, a coded threat. But... I think Hurst is telling the truth when he says that he does not expect any harm to come to Barrett because of this. Maybe if if not, if only because I think he expects this threat to go over so well on his end. You know, he expects them to be so cowed and so terrified that Al wouldn't dare right. 
hurt his messenger, but of course Al proves him wrong. Yeah, and I think that's the point, is this defiance is what is getting um, Hurst so upset. And, you know, this is some, I mean, this is his whole thing, right? Is he hates impediments, and he is used to them just sort of clearing out of the way. I mean, he has that incredible line when he's talking to um, uh, to Jari, Commissioner Jari, about um, uh, elections. He says, elections cannot inconvenience me. They ratify my will or I will neuter them. <laughs> or I neuter them. Which is just like, you know, I mean, sure, that there's, I'm, I have no doubt there are a lot of people who think exactly like, like this uh, in, uh, in, you know, society. Um, but uh, it's just like to say it like that, but like that is how he thinks. So... Like, elections cannot inconvenience me also pairs with, like, people cannot inconvenience me. I just remove them if they are in any way in, in my way. Um, and so, you know, when Al is that rock in the stream, you know, it's really getting him down. And the fact that Al has allies across the entire camp, that basically nobody wants this. Um, nobody really, like, likes Hurst in any way, shape, or form. It does sort of pose a... Um, a real challenge to his power. Now, I don't really know what the end game is here. You know, pulling out, pulling in 25 and then another 25 uh, Pinkertons with another 100 waiting in the wings or soldiers or whatever it is. I can't really see how this is supposed to play out well for like Bullock and Al and the rest of them. But the other thing I just want to point out, it occurs to me. Like everyone in the camp sold their claims to Hearst, so we never really met any of the other um, uh, prospectors. But like, there's not really that many people left in the camp, at least not on the mining side of things, because all of them are gone. I assume, right? The only one who is a prospector who is still there is Ellsworth, because he's you know with Alma. But I think everyone else is gone, which kind of makes it kind of a weird ghost town in a way, <laughs> where like the folks who you might have expected to be like an oppositional force to 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 Hearst haven't played it. It just it occurs to me just just now talking about it that like the whole the way Hearst got his initial power just in Deadwood, aside from his money and all that, was by buying everyone out by proxy and. Now there's like there really wasn't any, and that's how it was supposed to go. It's just that Alma's claim is still left, um, which is why he's making this whole play. And it is actually a brilliant play, right? Like this whole strategy of luring Bullock and uh, uh, Ellsworth out into the open so that he can, or into provocation so that he can justify killing them, is is brilliant. Um, and I love how Al deals with this by by like wiring uh, Bullock in without telling him exactly what's happening and by literally bashing Ellsworth on the head, hog-tying him, and then like, dragging him into the gem. I mean, it's it's incredibly smart, because, I mean, there's no other way to deal with them. They're both going to lose their minds. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh Alma, I gotta say, I was really impressed with her when Al tells her, I want you to continue your walk to the bank, and she kind of takes a beat, but then she's like, yeah, okay. Like, she'll, she'll do it. Yeah, it's like, brave. That's... It's really brave. That is the Alma. I have been kind of unimpressed with what they've done with her this season, but right. like, that's the Alma I'm. I remember. That's the Alma I'm very into. Yeah, I mean, it's a. Uh, uh, it's hard to call it agency in a way because it is kind of. 
entirely at the suggestion of um of al but it is also you know she she then takes that and makes that you know statement to ellsworth shortly thereafter sort of giving her a lot more agency over the decision making because it's sort of it doesn't just require to accept it it requires her to accept it and also talk ellsworth down and also you know actually do the walk and you know what i mean so it's like a um it's a cool moment for her and it, and it in in that moment sort of justifies some of the uh admiration everyone has for her i I, the thing here's i don't i know it sounds like i'm going i'm i'm down on alma i i like alma and i don't i don't mean to as a character but as like someone for these characters the other these other characters to look up to her like big claim to fame is being rich but like trixie who is went got herself educated in like um uh in accounting and has basically escaped life in the gem and Joni, who has done a similar sort of thing with her life to just sort of get out and reinvent herself, are both much more impressive, in my opinion. I don't know. Maybe it's because of their their stat their initial status as prostitutes that the other prostitutes and other people in the town can't ever see them in that way. But just like to, as a viewer, like they're both way more interesting than Alma in terms of like people who have really were had nothing going for them and managed to like make a life for themselves. Well, but Alma was at one point a really interesting character. Like, <laughs> I think again, like I'm not done to say that I don't appreciate the writing on the show. I really do. But like, I was really into Alma in season one when there was conflict between her and Al. I was really into her dynamic with Seth in season two, and that drama was really, really compelling. Um, and then in season three, it's like the drama with Seth just kind of fell away and they had her go back to the dope and then stop doing dope again. And it's, and there's some really kind of, you know, in a way moving, but just because the impetus was so kind of lame, not really that interesting drama with Ellsworth. It's just, uh, I, I kind of feel like they kind of ran out of things to do with Alma. I think it would have, it might've been better if, like, if you're not going to continue the drama between her and Seth, then that's a fine decision. It's fine to, I, I think it's fine to, at that point, just kind of let it go, even if it was, like, such a huge driving part of the plot for season two. Right. But and I think, one. and season one. But I think maybe there's nothing wrong with, at that point, saying, okay, Alma's going to be kind of a background character now. She's still going to be in the show, but she's not going to really have storylines. She can be part of maybe other people's, like, she can, like, Trixie can have a storyline about working for Alma at the bank. And Alma can be part of that, but it's not really about her as much as it's about Trixie. Mm. As opposed to what they've done with her this season, which is kind of like contrive uh, dramatic elements for her that don't really work for me. But I think I think this episode with Alma is really good. So like, I'm happy that <laughs> they got there. But like, so all of that's, like I, I I I buy into a lot of that in terms of her character, but in terms of as a role model for other people in the camp, how how do you feel about that? Um. Well, we should talk about that scene with the prostitutes, right? Because I think that's a really good scene, even though it's kind of short. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um. If I'm understanding correctly, they're kind of talking about how. Uh, they do kind of look up to Alma. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, and, that, and well, they're all they're all talking about like they wanted to talk to her and like have a conversation with her, but they 
we're like, oh, she wouldn't want to talk to us. And well, she talks to Trixie. Well, yeah, but she actually has things to talk about with Trixie. She has no reason to talk to us. Yeah, but exactly. Like, that's more to the point of like why Trixie's so cool. And like, I <laughs> but I think it goes to like how Alma is perceived in the camp, which is funny because she is kind of, you know, I don't know how should I put this. She can be kind of abrasive as a personality. She's not the most likable person. She's not particular. Yeah, you know, she has kind of a very mannered, upper crust charm that she puts on mm. that the way that rich people do, right. you know, the way that Hearst does, honestly, it's not, it's not dissimilar, but she is not like, she does not have the brusque kind of earthy charm that a lot of the other characters do that Trixie does mm. that Jane does that Al does. Um, where it's just like, those guys are, they're just, you just like them. You know what I mean? Um, Alma, not so much. And that's not a bad thing. Like, I'm not saying at all that, that, that that's bad writing or, or anything like that. It's just that's kind of who that character is. And I think it's interesting to see her positioned as this, like, almost aspirational figure in the camp as right. kind of a... not she, she is not considered a camp leader by the other leaders of camp, but she kind of maybe is by the people who live in the camp just mm. because of her position. Like, I think it's cool to see people perceive Alma that way, considering that as a personality, she is not as magnetic as a lot of other people. Yeah, but I mean, it's magnetic to us, but like for them, that's the norm and she's different. And so that's. I mean, yeah, maybe, that's maybe true. That's I mean, that's why you're absolutely yeah. right. Like it is because she acts like the way she does that people are maybe drawn to her. And also, you know, when they, they the way they talk about Philadelphia, like it's, 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 it's a great place. Nothing against Philadelphia, but it's just so funny because it's like, it's like the place and uh, the fancy place that she's from, the city, you know. Um, and, you know, granted, they're in basically the middle of nowhere. So like, you know, you can kind of see where they're, you know, their aspiration towards a town or a city and that socialite life um, makes a lot of sense. Um, but like also their only idea of what that, you know, they had some idea of that. And I guess maybe she meets that idea or bolsters it, or maybe gives them the idea in the first place of what Philadelphia is like. Like if that's Philadelphia, I want to go there kind of thing. And it's like this whole idea of, um, of uh yeah just sort of that that, that coastal elite you know that <laughs> that like that you know that's the, the 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 urbanization um uh goal of people who who might feel like you know i want to be able to move to the big city and you know make a name for myself or or have a different kind of life and it's it's it allows them to sort of play out that fantasy she is that example um now, of course, she left that to come to Deadwood, which is a, and stay in Deadwood, which is an even more interesting choice. Um, and the thing that they don't know, of course, is that she's really only here because of Seth, right? After her mm. husband died, she was like, I don't need to be here. But there's a man, so <laughs> stick around. And now it's not really clear why she's here. It seems like she's kind of attached to the town and to her life here. Um it doesn't seem like it's for Seth at all anymore. It's just seems she's got a bank and whatever. Um, and maybe she feels like, you know, despite how male dominated it still is, despite all of that, you know, she lived sort of under the direction or guidance or, you know, I'm using euphemisms here of her father, who was a miserable human being. And then of her husband, who wasn't a miserable human being, but whose family was very domineering. And now she's kind of free of all of that, 
you know, she decided to do the bank. She gets to actually make these decisions, and maybe she wouldn't have that freedom in Philadelphia. So ironically for her, Deadwood is a place of some amount of freedom. Um, granted, people are trying to kill her and yada, 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 but <laughs> she had some amount of freedom, some amount of power that she doesn't have in Philadelphia, but for these folks who are in the town who live there, like the prostitutes and like, um, you know, like Jewel, for example, um, where she came from is the place that they want to, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's this funny, like cross purposes where like she found her salvation here. They think their salvation might be in a place like that. And it's kind of a nice, um, you know, grass is greener on the other side kind of a, a phenomenon. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I, I agree with all that. I've, I, <laughs> I'm not saying, I don't know. I, I, I mean, what I'll ultimately say is what I said, which is that I like how Alma is written in this episode. That's that's what I'll yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so I think, and just on this uh, quick note, I like the idea that they sort of have muddied the waters a bit on this, where it's not clear. Obviously, Hearst is coordinating the 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 whole attack on on Alma, um, but I think it's cool that they color it with it may still also be the Garretts who are maybe allied with Hearst. Like, Al brings this up as a possibility, and it's very real. Like, they nobody discounts this at any point, that uh, Hearst may have made common cause via the Pinkertons with the Garretts to... Because the Garretts also have no... Int- you know, for all, for all we know, Hearst has made a backdoor deal where, like, the Garretts are like, yeah, once we get the claim back or get our money back or whatever, um, you can have it. We just don't want her to have it, you know? We don't know if that's the deal that's 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 happened, but I like that they've brought back this season one sort of element to keep the it, it to be a little less just black and white between Hearst and the rest of the camp. It also introduces this like past element that has a direct connection to Alma. Yeah, that's true. I actually hadn't considered that the Garretts might be involved at all. Um, well, they, he, Al says that he says, you know, I'm not sure. He actually says it twice. He says it first to he? yeah. He says it first to who's he talking to on. He comes out of his office and he's talking to somebody about it. Maybe it's Dan. I think it's Dan. Um, and then he also says it again a bit later where he's like, it's not clear. Oh, wait, he says it to Alma when he sits her down to for tea. He's like, look, it's not clear if it's Hearst or if it's your, um, your, your late husband's family or both, but someone's trying to kill you and it's probably, but here's where we think this sort of situation is. Um, and it's kind of a nice, uh, I don't know. I just like, you know, I just like keeping it a bit more complex than just, than just Hearst. Not that he's not compelling on his own. Um, sorry. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I told you about this, but I, I am in a right state today, so I don't think <laughs> I, I just didn't pick up on that at all. <laughs> no worries. Um, so yeah, I mean, speaking of Hearst, do you want to talk about this scene with Hearst, this, uh, crazy scene with, with Commissioner Jari? With Jari, um, oh, I thought you were going to say the scene with Farnham. <laughs> oh yeah, and that one. That one is intense as well. But the scene with uh, with Jari after the um, after Alma's shot at, they have a very strange conversation in his room about um, Socrates. Yes, 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 yes. Um, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it's funny to see someone. We have a character like Jari, who is a, like Farnham in a lot of ways, very Definitely. flowery in the way he talks and in, in a way to kind of like 
make himself seem very intelligent and mannered and learned and 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 well read he wants to put off that impression of like i am i'm just a very knowledgeable and intelligent person and i know what i'm talking about and that's why you should listen to me um and farnham is the exact same way and it's funny to see hearst like completely cut through that like um um what he says is like i'll be the uh, Alcibiades to your Socrates. I think right. that's the person he mentions. And um, her says, are you saying you want to fuck me? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just so funny to see, like, just, just completely chop down this, uh, this, this put on of, uh, of historical reference to make, to, to puff himself up um, in a, in obviously a homophobic way, but it is, you know, when we've become so accustomed to, to Jari and other characters acting like this, it's fun to see a character who just doesn't abide by that at all and has no time for it because so often characters will just kind of let it go and just kind of, or even play along. Well, actually, so it's funny, this is not really, it's not the, it's not the same um, intensity or viciousness because they're very different characters, but... Uh, Langriche actually does the same same thing to Shaughnessy right towards the beginning of the episode where he just we, we've seen Shaughnessy sort of spew his r- weird like religious OCD at people um, and they kind of just take it in stride I guess Jane sort of like you know uh, said something back to him but like mostly they're not really engaging with the, the material but like Langriche immediately cuts through that and is like, oh, so I, you know, your religion clearly allows you to take bribes <laughs> um, after he bribes him. Um, and it's just a great, like, way of just cutting through this very, again, this very, um, this facade of, like, pompousness, you know, that's just, like, not really, there's, it, it, it's not covering any sort of deep well of, like, knowledge or, like, deeply felt belief. It's just for show, really, um, and I and I like that Lingriche does that, and then we also have Hearst doing that. Um, but I also I think what's funny about this scene is that yeah, it's super homophobic and messed up, uh, and 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 uh, it's great to see Jari cut down. But what it also indicates is that a Hearst is well read, which is not a surprise, right? You know, as like a rich person, you know, of course he was he probably was taught latin and greek and all the rest of it and and we see earlier on when he's talking to barrett that he has a disdain for illiteracy um so he's like quite snobbish um but not in like he but he doesn't pose as an intellectual and the way he responds to jari here by saying like you know so you you know are you saying you want to fuck me is the least charitable reading of the alcibiades and um uh, socrates relationship like yeah, they were lovers. Like that's definitely uh, like a like a historical um, fact. But like, it, what it does is it sort of gets it gives you a little hint at like what Hearst was like when he was learning that, maybe as a kid or whenever he learned about that history, where he was sitting there going like listening about listening to these like this famous philosopher and this famous Athenian statesman and their relationship and whatever and his all that's going through his his head is you know they were having sex like that's his, the his takeaway from that story 
and that's how he applies it in this scenario. Now, is he is he doing that intentionally to sort of make it coarse so that he can shut Jari down, or is it because that's how he really views that relationship in this like very coarse way? Because Hurst isn't really one for like the high society sort of um, uh, deep thought philosophical sort of. Uh, uh, inquiries like he's not interested in that he's interested in like yeah but who was the power uh, in that relationship how did he like maneuver to get what he wanted like that's the kind of way he thinks about things it's very like coarse and to the point and so i like that his version of that story is so simplistic that it puts jari off guard because jari just clearly doesn't know what he's talking about but even more to the point like i said it tells us that hearst's understanding of like greek history and like classical history is very again black and white and really just not very nuanced it's really about the carnal side of things because that's how he thinks and we see that come out even more when he when he talks to farnham as you as you uh, you mentioned i think it's interesting because i think i view it as him almost like i agree with you that that sort of book that that sort of book learning doesn't really matter to him <laughs> but i also think that this his, is him like flexing over jari this is him saying oh you you trying you're trying to reference this but i know what you're talking about and i know that it's actually you know in this time period and to me uh coarse and perverse this reference you're making right and so don't step to me like you're acting like you're so much smarter than me because i know what you're talking about and i know more about it than you do maybe or more than you think i know and on top of that, it doesn't even fucking matter to me because I don't care. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's definitely part of it. Another part of it is uh, the first the, the first two things aside is he just it wants to throw Jari off guard, like so he can after Jari goes on and rambles and rambles and rambles, he wants to throw him off guard so that he can shut him down and get him the hell out of his room because he's contributing nothing. I mean, he, he's not a confidant. Uh, Hurst doesn't admit to anything. He like denies it, and then the next scene we see him talking to Barrett and like admits to everything because <laughs> we hear like you know you know get the lure out, Mister Ellsworth and Bullock, and save your other men for Bullock so that we can kill them too or whatever. Like he's very clearly planning these assassinations, um, more or less. Um, so like he's he's definitely really is behind what, what happened with with Alma, um, which we knew, um, but he doesn't even admit that to Jari. So it's not like they're in. Like, they're aligned, I guess, because Jari is a stooge, but not because he's in any way um, in uh, Hearst's good graces. And as we know, he has absolutely no no affinity for him. So this is also a way of just shaking him off, basically, and being like, all right, get the hell out of my face, which he shortly then tells him to do. And uh, and, it, and the, the whole conversation ends rather abruptly. Um so yeah, I I don't know, but it, regardless, I, I I it's a it's a scene that could have been played for just sort of cheap, just sort of like homophobic, um, points. But I think it it serves a lot of purpose. It's not just there for like laughs, although it is quite a. <laughs> I mean, I was I was quite taken aback when the whole scene went down. I saw you. Oh yeah, it, it, it is. I'm, I'm totally with you on it. Yeah. <laughs> um. And what about this uh, this this uh, scene with E.B. Farnham? Oh, again, Hurst being very uh, dominant, and when he spits in his face and he Ugh. says, "I better not have seen you. I better next time I see you, you better not have wiped that off." Like yeah. Jesus Christ, yeah, that is that is 
That is a lot. And it's <laughs> it's crazy because he just goes to Far- Farnham has nothing to do with what's going on. The only thing Farnham has done so far, and it is absolutely hilarious, is send Richardson with a note pinned to him to Al to say what is happening. And <laughs> Al's like, could just tell him nothing. <laughs> um, like that's all he has to to, to offer back. Um, but like that's all Farnham's done. And then so like I was trying to figure out what happened. Like did did uh, Hurst get some sort of information that was like implicating Farnham? No, he just needed someone to to dominate over so that he could feel big. Um, and and I also like speaking of this sort of like needing to feel big. I like how Al frames it at one point where he's like, I want him to feel like he's you know his toys won't do what he wants them to do you know like he's like a kid in a a sandbox basically and i think that is exactly how like her should definitely be handled you know if he wants to play into this little kid sort of um archetype that he sort of uh entertains uh that we've talked about several times in the past then they should treat him like one you know like well we're not gonna you know if if we're the ants under the magnifying glass, we're not just going to sit there while you cook us. We're going to, you know, fight back in some way, um, or at least be annoying so that you can't immediately kill us, right? You know, if you end up having to smush us with your finger, that's one thing. But we're not going to sit there while you slowly bake us. And I think that that's a really nice, like, strategic and um, moralistic um, approach to the to what Hearst is doing. Um, yeah. I think that's most of the episode. Yeah, I mean, could we? you want to talk a little bit about Jane and Joni? There's not much to say that we haven't already said, but I do think this scene is really sweet. It is really sweet. Yeah, Jane tells a story about um, her dream where she basically relives what happened with, um, uh, with Bill and then how Al was threatening um, Sophia and how he how she ran away with um Charlie and they both sang row uh row your boat to her and we we saw like we've seen all of this it's kind of a nice recap of stuff that I haven't thought about in a long time um but then it all comes back to her relationship with Joni which again sort of cuts off <laughs> you know just you know just as they kiss which is again quite um quite uh subtle um for the show and just in general although the show doesn't really deal that much in sex anyway i mean it does but it doesn't deal in sex scenes the way that you might expect um so yeah i mean it's a it's a sweet scene i I tried to take some notes on it because i thought it might be interesting to discuss but like not a lot actually really happens here it's just sort of a reflection on what happened in the previous episode where they walked together to, to lead the school kids which again was really nice when we saw it and it's nice to sort of see it in reflection um i don't know what did, was there anything else for you no i think that about covers it like it's it's stuff we've talked about before but i did just want to make note of it yeah definitely um and the other thing that's uh a significant scene i in some regard although i still don't quite understand it is this whatever's going on with langrish oh yeah you know i don't care <laughs> it didn't really make any impression on me to be honest so the first thing is there was a woman who we I remarked on a couple of episodes ago who had come into the um, to Farnham's hotel that Farnham tried to he was the one he, she was the one he made that comment I think it was the same person he made that comment about how he had to sneak into her room later so that he could 
I don't know, be creepy. Um, and uh, she was like, it was a weird moment because like they introduced this character who like they didn't name or anything, but just a sort of well-dressed woman had come into the hotel and, and had lines and then we didn't really hear from her again. And now Langreach has visited her and we realized that it seems like, so her name's Mary. She seems to be someone who was like in love with Langreach, but Langreach, I guess, never really reciprocated. Um, and she just sort of got tired of waiting. And he came to tell her that he has now recruited this new um, actor to the to the theater. And she's sort of convinced that he's um, going to be sleeping with this new person. And he's like, no, that's that's not the plan. She's just been recruited to the to the theater troupe. Um, and her name's Josiane. Uh, and she was actually a performer in Amateur Night. Um, yes. What I so as far as plot, I have no idea what relevance this has to what's going on. So we'll just put that to one side. I love the scene where she leaves. I really, really, really like the scene where Mary leaves because um, Langreach comes in and he sits down to basically break the news to his other uh, his his compatriot uh, actors that Josiane's going to be moving into the theater, which they are not happy with. And it's this great scene where, like, Brian Cox is tur- turns towards... He comes in and he sees the briefcases. He sits down, he breaks the news. He turns back. Mary's there She's um, with Richardson and is getting ready to leave. He turns back to say something else to the actors. He turns back again, and she's gone. She's just completely gone. And it's this great, like... Like, it's like three scenes. It's, like, it's almost like a comic strip panel or or a, a triptych or something that sort of comes together over the course of through time and when you were talking about editing this is actually the scene that i thought of most because i just i love the way it plays out where it's this like the the kinetic motion of him turning left and right as he looks back and forth and tries to you know focus his conversation on what he's saying and he's sort of not really talking to them he's in some ways talking to mary but of course mary's not there to, to hear what he's saying and i just think it's it's really cleverly edited and, and so it plays out in a, in a great way and of course Brian Cox delivers uh, yeah another fantastic performance where he's you know the emotion and what he's he's saying is is coming out pretty evidently I wish this connected to a plot that we <laughs> invested in because it's yeah. a cool moment that doesn't um you know we're so distracted with what's going on with Hearst it's not really clear why this is playing out now and actually as you said so I think there are ways to introduce the theater stuff this late I think there's certainly ways to do it. It's been mostly just kind of confusing so far. Um, it does almost feel like this would have worked really well in like season one to like introduce them as characters because we would be learning about everyone and it'd be like, well, this doesn't make any sense, but nothing makes sense. We don't know anybody's deal. But in season three, to have such a slow burn introduction to these characters is like, and like what their role is in the camp. Not obviously we know they're a theater troupe, but like what are they there for? How are they going to affect the power dynamics in the camp? And we still really haven't gotten that. It's a bit weird to do that now in season three. I mean, we get a little bit of like Langreach and Hearst, but beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll have to see where, if anywhere, it goes, right? If this has. I would be really interested if this kind of enters play in an unexpected way and maybe it will 
or maybe this is them saying we're definitely going to get a season four and we're just I I think that's much more likely Um, I mean who knows like I said I I actually have no idea if he's in the movie so I don't know if like you know that we'll get some follow up on what happened with Link Grish if like Brian Cox is in the film Um, but yeah beyond that I'm 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 as lost as you are. I really don't know. I think this was like part of the agita is like they were like sort of seeding these 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 plots that obviously had like a longer term plan and then they weren't able to follow up on it because the the show ended. So yeah, um, I mean maybe something will come of it before the end of the uh, the season. I, I, I mean yeah, I mean we can't expect everything to tie up because as we know that's that's not really how it's going to go. But considering they don't have the like the firepower to deal with Hurst, it may come down to Will and Grish or some similar sort of uh, um, trickery or something to 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 deal with Hurst because you know what I mean, like sort of a a, a bug's life or <laughs> some sort of similar thing, you know, where you're doing a, a, a some sort of scheme in order to to get one over on Hurst because as it stands, like an all-out battle is not really in the cards. Um, but yeah, who knows? Maybe so maybe it'll be one some last minute um, heroics from Lingrace. I just I don't I don't see it as as of right now. And they're not really building towards that beyond like the back stuff he's been doing. So I don't know. We'll see. I guess we will. <laughs> <laughs> um maybe we'll see next week in episode eleven, which is called The Catbird Seat. Catbird seat, what a name! Um, yes, and uh, some uh, fun news about next week. We are going to be having a guest on the show. Uh, I won't spoil it uh, just yet, but uh, we actually maybe I'll just eh, why not? You know what? I'm going to throw in the the whole news. We have three guests coming over the next three episodes uh, to wrap up our Hoopleheads uh, series. So it's extremely exciting. Um, we will introduce each of those guests uh, on the weeks that they're around. So um, get excited for that. There's some very cool folks uh, who are going to be um, here to give different perspectives on, on Deadwood. And I mean, very different perspectives, historical context, uh, TV, you know, sort of critic type analysis, um, just yeah, fans t- of the TV show. TV critic type analysis. Po- and po- say no more about that. <laughs> Um, podcasts and all with like podcasts, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, angles on things, obviously as it is, uh, that is what we do, but, um, yeah, no, I think it'll be really, really exciting. I'm really excited to have them on. Uh, and, uh, if you want to catch all of those episodes, make sure that you do subscribe, uh, to Hoopleheads. Um, uh, and remember when you subscribe to Movie Fail, you will get all of our podcasts so you can listen to our Game of Thrones podcast. If you want to go back and listen to those, um, you can listen to uh, our Legend of Korra podcast, uh, and then also our future podcasts, which um, have not quite been developed yet, but will be coming down the pipe um, fairly uh, soon after we finish Deadwood. Uh, so that's very exciting. So definitely uh, uh, subscribe there. So you can subscribe on Movie Fail, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, any of those, um, and uh, you'll get these um, these episodes typed in directly to your inbox or your, your feed of choice. So, uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been fun, and, uh, yeah, let's, let's do the catbird scene next week. Absolutely. Talk to you then. Talk to you then.